bewildered or perplexed about what is happening in Israel and the Middle East. You know, it's not an issue that's going to disappear. You may feel that this is of no interest to you in Europe or in the Americas or wherever you live, but as you'll see, it is an issue that all believers need to understand, for it affects all of our lives. And you may have strong feelings about the current missile launches from Gaza and the military response from Israel. And you may have strong sympathies for those who are suffering on either side of the Jewish-Palestinian divide. It is indeed tragic when people suffer unnecessarily. But what we need to do is go deeper and to see not just what is happening, but why it is happening. You may have already made up your mind on this issue, perhaps through careful research or because of keeping a casual ear to what the news sources are saying. But I would ask you to not come to the table with a set of preconceptions, but with an open mind. As the book of Proverbs says, the first to present a case seems right until another comes forward and questions him. I'm keen to give you a prophetic insight into what has been happening in Israel since its inception. In order for you to understand what is happening, you're going to need to have a grasp on what has happened in the past. And then you'll be able to see how biblical prophecies are likely to play out in the Holy Land in the future. And as you'll see, if you're on the right side of this issue, it will be good for you. So let's have a quick jump into Israel's history. In the biblical account, we are first introduced to the land that is now called Israel in the story of Abraham, who was called out of his father's house in Ur of the Chaldeans to a land that he knew not, according to Hebrews 11 and 8. So right from the outset, the Lord clearly shows us that this is a land and a place that has been specially chosen by him to be used for his divine purposes. Indeed, it is here that the move of God is centered for millennia. Running from north to south in the country is a ridgeway, the highest point of which is Mount Moriah, the place to which Abraham traveled to sacrifice his son Isaac to the Lord and where the angel of the Lord stayed his hand and provided a ram to be sacrificed in Isaac's stead, giving mankind a first real glimpse into the coming substitution of God's own son on our behalf. And it was through this family that God chose to bring forth the Messiah, and therefore he determined that they should have their own land. The name Israel, meaning Prince of God or Prince with God, was first given to Jacob as he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. And so it's here where the patriarchs settled until the move of God shifted to Egypt when Joseph was abducted and later appointed to Pharaoh's court in Egypt. But it was too here that Moses was instructed to lead the captive Israelites after 400 years of first settlement and later slavery in Egypt. And when Joshua took the lead, he crossed over the Jordan River from the east, destroyed the Canaanite city of Jericho, giving the people access to the land flowing and milk and honey. And so here, the 12 tribes of Israel settled by pushing back the local idol-worshipping and child-sacrificing peoples and taking possession of the land that had been promised to them. 
It was David, the valiant king, who finally cleared the land, secured the borders of Israel from the foreign intruders, and established Jerusalem as its capital, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city with the desire to build a house for the Lord's presence to dwell in. His son Solomon was given this task by God, and the most glorious temple that the world had ever seen was built to the praise and honor of the God of Israel. God's blessing was upon the land so that it prospered and under Solomon's wise leadership became the richest kingdom of ancient days with both master and servant enjoying bountiful produce of the land. These indeed were the glory days of Israel. However, just as the Lord had promised blessings upon his people for their obedience, he'd also warned them of curses for their disobedience as written in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. As the children of Israel prostituted themselves with the Canaanite gods such as Baal, the god of fertility and prostitution, God removed his hand of blessing and allowed Israel's enemies to punish them. This was a way that he could call them back to himself. But despite the calls of many judges and prophets that were raised up over the subsequent centuries, Israel for the most part fell away from serving the one true living God and thereby suffered terribly as a consequence. The kingdom was split into two parts until the days of Jeroboam, uh, uh, Solomon's unwise son. The northern kingdom of Israel was carried away into captivity by the Assyrians in 740 BC, and the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered and carried away by the Babylonians in 598 BC, who in the process destroyed Solomon's temple and left the city in ruins. For 70 long years, the people sat down at the side of the river of Babylon and wept as they remembered Zion, according to the famous Psalm 138. However, the Lord heard their cries and delivered them once again, and they returned to their own land, where, under the guidance of Nehemiah, uh, the pearl of Israel, Jerusalem, whose walls had been destroyed and whose gates had been burned, it was rebuilt to its former splendor. Nevertheless, despite a religious formality, the Israelite people returned to worship God really with their lips only and not with their hearts, and they turned away from the Lord yet again. This was a dark period for Israel, for there was no prophet in Israel and no word of the Lord not because of the Lord and him not being able or willing to speak, but because the people had become dull of hearing. Who conquered and destroyed again and again by foreign armies, the Persians, the Greeks. And when Jesus, God's son, was born, the country was firmly under the control of the Romans, as you'll remember. Now, time doesn't allow for me to tell of all the wonderful works that were done here during the 33 years of Christ's life. Suffice to say that his, his focus was first and foremost to the lost sheep of Israel, according to Matthew 15 and 24. He was brought up in the beautiful northern region of Galilee, and it is here on the hills above Capernaum that he taught the great treaties of the kingdom of God that we now know as the Beatitudes. And again, it was here on Lake Genesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, that he walked upon the water and taught his disciples to be fishers of men. To Jerusalem, he would go to celebrate the feasts of Israel, culminating in his final Passover, which he himself gave his life as a sacrificial lamb 
for the sins of the world, in the same place where Abraham had offered Isaac 2,000 years before. Yet Christ, the cornerstone of the kingdom of God and of all true civilization, was rejected by the religious and political authorities of the day. It was with tears that Jesus had lamented over Jerusalem, as a mother desires to protect her children and a hen desires to gather her chicks under her wings. For he knew of the coming destruction and, the, and foretold that the second temple would be destroyed with not one stone remaining upon another, as in Matthew 24 and 2. And that came to pass in AD 70. After a three-year revolt against the Romans, General Titus was given the command of Caesar to retake control of the city of Jerusalem. And historians tell us that he did not want or desire to destroy the city and least of all the temple. But because of stubborn resistance by the rebels, he was forced to burn the city down, fulfilling the prophecies of God. Over one million people were killed and a further hundred thousand taken captives. And from this time forward, the Jews were driven out of Jerusalem and out of the land of Israel. You see, despite Israel's disobedience, the Lord had always kept for himself a faithful remnant. We need to remember this, for indeed, through Israel, not only had come the law and the prophets, but now also the apostles of the church who laid the foundations of the church for both Jew and Gentile. Jesus' first followers were called Christians in Antioch and were dispersed throughout the world, spearheaded by the indefatigable Apostle Paul. And these faithful, self-sacrificing servants of the Lord began to build God's hidden, hidden kingdom in the hearts of men whilst Rome languished in its luxury and decadence. The move of God primarily headed to Europe in those days with Paul's Macedonian call and subsequent establishment of churches in major cities such as Corinth, Ephesus and Rome. And this extraordinary scattering or migration of Jews to Europe and North Africa is called the Diaspora. The Israelites settled in these new countries and added ritually to the local societies, but constantly prayed to return to Jerusalem and return to Israel over the centuries. And a common greeting between Jews was and is still, see you next year in Jerusalem. For the next 300 years, Israel remained under Roman and Byzantine control until it fell in AD 636 to the Arabs who built the Dome of the Rock in the grounds of the destroyed Jewish temple. In 1099, the Crusaders from Europe came to capture the Holy Land, massacring the non-Christian population. However, the Arabs recaptured Jerusalem after 200 years and the region became part of the Ottoman Empire, initially under the rule of Sultan Solomon the Magnificent. And then, fast forwarding to 1917, the British, under General Allenby, liberated Israel from the Ottomans during the First World War and under the Balfour Declaration recognized the rights of the Jewish people to establish a national home in Palestine. However, later the British broke their promise and under the Palestine Mandate split the area into two, Israel on the one hand with approximately one-third of the promised area and Jordan was given to the Arabs. And in the first, first half of the 20th century, 
there were two major waves of immigration of Jews back to Israel and the rise of the Zionist movement. These Jews were often subjugated to terrible violence at the hands of local Arabs as they arrived. And Britain, in an attempt to keep peace and appease the Arabs, tragically implemented, implemented what was called the White Paper Policy, which limited the amount of returning Jews to only 10,000 per year. And this contributed, unfortunately, to the terrors of the Holocaust, in which six million Jews were systematically destroyed in gas chambers by the Nazis in World War II. Nonetheless, in 1948, under the leadership of David Ben-Gurion, independence was offered to Israel by the United Nations. And whilst the Arabs rejected it, the Jews signed the offer and Israel became a nation, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 66 and 8. And it says there, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. The very next day, war broke out, and so started the first of four recent wars initiated by surrounding Arab states who wanted to destroy Israel. However, in all of these, the War of Independence, the Sinai War, the Six-Day War, and the War of Yom Kippur, Israel defended itself against far superior forces and drove their enemies back and captured new territories each time, which they later traded for peace. Yet even today, the destruction of Israel is either stated in the Constitution or high on the agenda of a number of the surrounding Arab states. So despite these birth pains, Israel has emerged as a prosperous, civilized democracy, a developed nation with a first world infrastructure, economy, and legal system. This is extraordinary as the nation is only 70 years of age compared to, say, the ancient civilization of Egypt, which is more than 3,000 years old and yet remains economically and politically unstable. It is already 16th in the world's Human Development Index, which measures life expectancy and education, as well as other things. It's well kept and clean. Local Israelis volunteer to clean and rebuild the ancient cities and take pride in placing stones upon the ancient walls. The national pride there is phenomenal. Every single member of the society wants to help make the place better and cleaner. And whilst much economic wealth comes through the burgeoning high-tech industries such as Intel, even the land itself has now become highly productive through a combination of modern irrigation techniques and a strange, not supernatural phenomenon of increased annual precipitation. In short, no nation has managed to successfully work this land for 2,000 years until now. Every nation that took a hold of that land couldn't make it prosperous and couldn't make a profit out of it. It remained a desert, but now that it's back in the hands of the Jews, it's suddenly become an economic powerhouse. You know, many of the Nobel Peace Prize winners over recent years have been Jews for their achievements in physics, chemistry, physiology, physiology or medicine, literature, and peace. Nobel Prizes have been awarded to over 800 individuals, of whom at least 20% were Jews, although Jews comprise of less than 0.2% of, 
the world's population. It seems there's something special upon that people. And this brings me on to some major themes that I would now like to share with you to give you not just man's story with regard to Israel, but God's story. After all, all history is really his story. So I'd like you to consider four issues that really all of us need to know about Israel. And the first is this, that Israel is a biblical issue. The land of Israel is not just a historical or political issue, it's a biblical one. You see, we believe that the right for Israel to exist is upon political grounds at one level, but so much more than that. Thinking politically, it's right that every people group should be able to have a land to settle in, especially with a population of Jews, which is now about 15 million people worldwide, despite the Holocaust, in which 7 million people excuse me, six million people were exterminated. And today though, more than seven million people actually live inside the nation of Israel. We also believe that a nation has a right to exist on historical grounds. And it's true that Abraham moved there more than 4,000 years ago. Yes, he, uh, the children of Israel were led into slavery, but Moses returned there more than 1,250 years before Christ. And so there is a historical precedent as well. It's true, there were people groups that lived in the land when Moses returned, such as the Canaanites, but none of those ancient tribes still exist today. Israel is the only people group that still survives. And so historically, they also have a claim to the land. But the principal reason why the Jews should live in Israel is actually a biblical issue. See, God specifically gave them this land. In his divine wisdom, he chose a man, Abraham, and thereby a people group, Israel, and gave them a land into which God's son would be born. Those who respect this, God is blessed, and those who have disrespected this, ultimately God is cursed. The scripture says way back there in Genesis, chapter 12 verse 3 I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you Abraham all the families of the earth shall be blessed and this shows us a divine principle a divine workings behind the nation of Israel you see the Lord always reserves something for himself that we should not touch this is so that mankind learns to be submitted to a greater being for his own sake Scripture says that pride comes before the fall. And when man's ego reigns and he supposes himself wiser and greater than his maker, this leads to his own destruction. We can see this happening with Lucifer as he deemed himself equal or greater to God and therefore was rejected from heaven. In the Garden of Eden, if you remember, the Lord gave man thousands of trees and plants and flowers to eat and to enjoy. He separated just one for himself, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and told man not to eat from it. This was a test of humility for man, to keep him in the place of blessing. Scripture says that God resists the proud, those who think themselves greater than God, but he gives grace to the humble. That's why God put that one tree there, to keep Adam and Eve in a place of humility. And likewise, God has given to the whole earth Oh, excuse me, God has given the whole earth to the Gentile nations. However, he separated just one slither of dry land in the Middle East to
to himself and to his people Israel. Again, this is a test of humility. All the other nations can enjoy all the other places on earth, but this little bit, he says, don't touch it. That belongs to me and my people. And if other nations can respect this, then their own nations will be blessed. If not, they detach themselves from God's blessing. If not, they show that they're not humble nations. They're proud nations. They want to be greater than their maker, the giver of all this land and all this abundance. You see, it's God's way of bringing blessing to nations by allowing them to prove their humility by respecting Israel. But he can't reward the proud. He can't reward arrogant nations. In the same way, God brings blessings to those who are faithful with their first fruits, their tithes, which belong to the Lord, according to Scripture. And by respecting this principle, extraordinary blessings come their way for people who respect that principle. You see, if you study history, and you won't learn this necessarily at school or at university, but having learned this, I encourage you to go back and study your history books. You'll see that every nation that has come against Israel has ultimately been destroyed. I ask this question, where are the Persians? Where are the Romans? Where are the Greeks? Where are the Ottomans? Where are the Nazis? Where even are the British today? Because they too turned their back on Israel at a critical moment. And therefore, it's our intention as a church and believers, my friends, that we must determine for ourselves to be a blessing to Israel and to support their right to exist and to have their own land. The second point I want to bring to you is that Israel is an exemplive issue. How the Lord has dealt with them shows us how the Lord will deal with us. See, we can travel to Israel to get a deeper understanding of the scriptures. Visiting the sites is both educational and inspirational. But beyond this, by studying Israel, we can learn about the Lord himself. He is a covenant-keeping God. Their story shows his goodness and his severity. Listen to what the scripture says through the Apostle Paul in Romans. He wrote, For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. That's Romans 11:21 to 23. Again, this is the scripture in Jeremiah 9 and 21. Even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse on the open field, like cuttings after the harvester, and no one shall gather them. As painful as it is, we can see that the Holocaust is in some way a result of Israel's failure to keep covenant. Yet the Lord wept over them as David wept over his rebellious son Absalom. Therefore, as a church, we want to learn from Israel. We must understand that individually and corporately, God will deal with us as he dealt with Israel. If we harden our hearts, then he will remove his blessing and his protection. I'm an Englishman, and I understand that. When was the British Empire lost? When we turned against Israel, when we hardened our hearts and prided ourselves in our own strength. You see, Israel is an exemplive issue. It's kind of like everything that happens in that tiny nation is 
magnified so that we other nations can see how God deals, how he acts, how he rewards. It's only a small nation, but it acts as a kind of trumpet call for the rest of the nations. How God dealt with them, ultimately he will deal with our nations. So it's good for us to study it. The third issue about Israel is the fact that it is a root issue. Uh, the scripture shows us that really we should honor our roots and therefore we should honor Israel. You see, it is right and proper that we honor our elders. It was the Jewish nation that brought us the law, the prophets and the Lord Jesus himself, the Bible and indeed all of the church apostles. They laid down their lives that we should live and we must do the same for them that they might live. As Paul writes in Romans 11:18, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Therefore, we want to and should pray for them and find ways to honor them and minister to them in love. See, Gentiles over the years have dishonored Israel, but this end time church is now learning the need to honor Israel, pray for Israel, and do everything we can to show our love and respect towards them. Now, fourthly, Israel is a prophetic issue. It's a barometer. What happens with Israel shows us where we are in the timings of God for the end of days. This is what Ezekiel said in chapter 36, or the Lord said through Ezekiel, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my own name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I'm hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Now firstly, Ezekiel prophesies in the end times that the Jewish people who have been scattered abroad will be gathered again from the other nations. Now three million Jews have returned to Israel since it became a nation state. And it's important to notice that this ingathering is not because of the holiness of Israel, but because of the Lord's namesake. He said, I'd do it to honor my own name. The second thing is that the Lord will gather Israel so that the other nations shall know that he is God, that he is the Lord. And so it's tragic that the United Nations close their eyes to this reality. It is a testimony to them the very fact that Israel has become a nation state and that so many Jewish people have returned to that land. So listen again to what Ezekiel says, and the first word here is key. He says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then 
you will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 28. You see, the point is this. After the Jewish people are back in the land, in the land of Israel, then the Lord will begin to save them. And this is beginning to happen with now more than 15,000, perhaps 20,000 Messianic believers now living in Israel and dozens of new congregations. Many of these are Russian Jews, as prophesied as well in the scripture. In Ezekiel 16, behold, I will bring them from the north country. I will gather them from the ends of the earth. Even back in 1864, Charles Spurgeon, the famous English preacher, said this, First, there is to be a political restoration of the Jews. Israel is now blotted out from the map of nations. Her sons are scattered far and wide. Her daughters mourn beside all the rivers of the earth. Her sacred son is hushed. No king reigns in Jerusalem. She bringeth forth no governors among her tribes. But she is to be restored as one from the dead. That was the famous Charles Spurgeon speaking literally a hundred years or so before Israel was reinstated as a nation. And indeed, the Apostle Paul says in Romans eleven sixteen that the Jewish awakening will be like life from the dead. You see, we're at the beginning of this now. We are also at a time where the Gentile nations that have never had a move of God before are experiencing them. Paul states in Romans 11, 25 and 26 that after the fullness of the time of the Gentiles has come, then Israel shall be saved. And this is what he wrote. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own opinion. Boy, so many nations are like that. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. See, in China, there are thousands being saved day by day. In the Philippines and Thailand and Singapore and Hong Kong, there are huge moves of God, as is there here in, in South America and Africa. Even Muslim nations are now beginning to experience mass conversions. The largest Muslim nation of Indonesia, with over 240 million people, has now got numerous megachurches with tens of thousands of believers. Hallelujah. And closer to Israel, there's a church in Cairo that I was hearing of that has sprung up to more than 15,000 believers since the unrest there a few years ago. Reports are coming out of Syria, of an unpublicized but strong move of God. All over the Middle East, Muslims are having visions of a man dressed in white who reveals himself as Issa or Yeshua, Jesus, the Son of the living God. You see, the fullness of the times of the Gentiles is almost upon us, and then Israel shall be saved. The clock is ticking, and now we're entering into the last hour. So the big question really is, how should we respond to these recent happenings in Israel? Friends, we must shake ourselves awake from slumber. God is sending us many signs that time is short and giving us direction on what to do. We must become active, not passive in this issue. We need to defend Israel. Uh, we need to show, actually, that God's hand is upon them and that that land belongs to them.
It's not enough to remain neutral on the issue. You're either for it or against it. So we must also avoid the extremes of what's called replacement theology on the one hand and dual covenant theology on the other. Uh, what am I saying by saying that? You see, if Nicodemus needed to be saved uh, and, and he was a leader of Israel, then so too to all Jews. Nicodemus was a leader of a synagogue, a religious man. Okay? Peter said in Acts chapter 2 and 36, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus who you crucified both Lord and Christ. So we do need to share the gospel, the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ to the Jews. And therefore as a church, we must help the Jews return to and dwell safely in Jerusalem and in the land of Israel, uh, but also help them to return to and dwell safely in the new Jerusalem. You see, there's a physical help we can, we can offer, okay? But there's also spiritual help that we must offer. We must stand on their side and defend them right now from all military attacks uh, and from this way that all the, or many of the surrounding nations want to destroy Israel. Uh, we must defend them. We must stand up for them politically. The United Nations try and uh, work something against them. We need to defend the land of Israel. But also on the spiritual side, we must remember that these uh, people also desperately need to hear the good news of the gospel, the grace and the goodness of God. If you're interested to know what the Bible says about the future of Israel, let me know through your questions and comments to this video. Many things are yet to be played out there. And just as past prophecies have already come true, so will the future ones. And I can share these things in a future broadcast. So please remember to like this video and subscribe to the channel. Also hit the no notifications bell to get informed when one of our videos is next posted. God bless you. Well, thank you so much for tuning in today. And we like to finish with an opportunity for people to give their lives to Christ. And if you've never done that before, say these words after me. Lord Jesus, come into my life. I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. And I thank you for a new heart and a new start. Amen. And we believe that you've now been born again. And we encourage you to join a Christ-centered church in your area. God bless you. To acquire more teachings to help you grow in wisdom and grace, check out our website, thegreatmission.org, where you can order paper copies or Kindle versions of inspiring materials, such as, There's a Miracle Coming Your Way. Finally, we would also ask you to consider becoming a partner of TGM, The Great Mission. Through a network of missionary evangelists, we are holding events in Asia, Africa, and South America to get the gospel of grace in word and action to hundreds of families every month. We hold grace festivals where multitudes of needy people have received food parcels and been transformed by the message of God's goodness and grace. By becoming a monthly partner, you can be part of a worldwide harvest of souls. Thanks for your consideration.